Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent, but will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, urban sustainability and resilience, resilience engineering, ethics of resilience and multi-actor systems, we want to discuss the values in social technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural, and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy, and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions, social, economic, and environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So, we came up with the idea of this podcast. We wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Today we have with us Leilani Farha, speaking to us from Canada. Leilani was UN Special Rapporteur for the Right of Housing and is now Director of SHIFT, a large NGO based in Canada that fights for and promotes the right to dignified housing. Leilani will talk more about the SHIFT, but it's important to highlight their philosophy. In their own words, the SHIFT recognizes housing as a human right, not a commodity or extractive industry, the shift restores the understanding of housing as a home, challenging the ways financial actors undermine the right to housing. Using a human rights framework, the shift provokes action to end homelessness, unaffordability and evictions globally. The link to the shift is on the description of the episode. Thank you 
so much, Luz, Roberto, Martin, for such a warm uh, welcome and uh, greeting. I'm really super happy to be here. And I note in particular that there are lots of young people on the Zoom call. From what I can tell, none of you look wrinkled and tired like me, which suggests you're much younger than me. And I really am so pleased because I feel the topic that we're talking about today is one that is so very important to the future of young people. And um, I actually think it's one of the it issues of the day that we should all be seized with and talking about. So, so very happy that um, this convening is happening and that I was invited uh, to join you. Um, <clears throat> Martin, I have to say, I cannot wait for your book to come out. So thank you for giving me a heads up about that. It looks amazing. Professor Hilchansky is a, is a, a friend, a colleague. Um, and of course, I admire his work very much and have relied on it throughout my own work. So I'm, I think your book is timely. And to be tracking this as a global pattern is exactly what we need uh, and is very much where I've been coming from on this issue and why, in fact, I started the shift. Uh, because we do have before us a global housing crisis that does require global responses, in my opinion. It needs local responses too, and city-based responses, but certainly we need to also view this as a global phenomenon. I guess where I wanted to start my comments um, is by just, you know, posing the question, who are cities for? Who are they for? Are they for rich people? Are they for financial actors? Are they for professionals? Are they for a broader ambit of people? Are they in fact for everyone? And I guess where I land is that I think they, they are for everyone and must be for everyone. As Martin said, cities are often where the jobs are. People go where they can survive, where they can find a livelihood to survive. Now we're understanding that accessing affordable housing is so much part of finding a livelihood, that you can have a job, but if you can't find affordable housing, that job ends up being meaningless to you. And I think housings are, housing, excuse me, cities are for everyone because we need a mix of people for cities to run. That's just so obvious. You can't have just a, a city that's with investors and, and rich people because, and this is, this is not how I view cities, but from their point of view, they require services. Rich people like their expensive coffees. They like having household help. They like going to shops and having shopkeepers. Um, they even like to avail themselves of informal markets on occasion. Um, and so obviously those jobs need to be populated and people need to live in cities to have those jobs. But then there is, of course, a more mm, vision-oriented reason that we want cities to be for everyone. Because that's what gives life to a city. That's what gives it its diversity. The pulse of a city, the grittiness, is to have a complete mix and jumble of people. Um, if any of you who have walked the streets of cities, you'll know that, that 
while you may feel uncomfortable in some moments in a city, it is what gives it, it gives a city a vibe is when you have even some friction and tensions between people. To me, these are all actually very healthy things. This is what creates energy in a place. I say that if we continue on the unsustainable path we're on, cities are going to start resembling the most awful places in the world, airports, right? Generic store after generic store, a kind of lack of emotionality in the room, uh, sterile quality, a what city am I in could be anywhere because there's Louis Vuitton and there's H&M and there's Starbucks. So I think it is clear that we are on an unsustainable path and Martin um, uh, and Luz um, already alluded to that. Um, and I think COVID-19 as a pandemic only exposed the unsustainable path that we're on. It only exposed the housing crisis that predates the pandemic and that is thriving in the midst of the pandemic. So what are the marks or hallmarks um, or characteristics of the housing crisis, both before the pandemic and certainly in the middle of the pandemic? Well, number one is, a well, maybe not number one. I'm not going to rank them because they're all of these are are um, competing strains on housing systems. But we know that we have an affordability problem in most cities, global north and global south. And in fact, I like to draw. Normally, we would be together and I would have perhaps a... um, uh, a board behind me, but I'll draw it here in my notebook and then I'll show it to you. So this is basically, I hope you can see, I only have an orange pen. Orange is not a good color, but maybe you can see, I don't know. Can you see what I'm showing you anyway is a simple graph. So you've got a 90 degree angle here. That's your graph. And then you've got this line going off this way. That line is wages. Oh, someone's saying I can't see. Well, here, I'll draw it with my hands. You've got a graph and you've got a line that goes a bit like this, a little bit up, just a little bit, or it stays pretty like this. That's wages over time. Eh, Wages are stagnant. Stasis, we might say. And then you have a line that goes like this and it's arching up, 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 up. It's not the pandemic line, although it could be. (laughs) That line is the cost of housing over time. And that gap is human suffering. That gap is the violation of the right to housing. That gap is housing precarity. That gap is the risk of eviction. And that's what we're concerned about in terms of the unsustainability of housing in cities. So you move to a city because that's where the employment is. And you get a job that should be, you know, a decent wage, whether it's working as a cleaner or whether it's working in a tech, in tech industry. And suddenly you find that you actually can't afford to take the job because you can't afford to live in that city. Now, part of that is wages having stagnated, but part of that is the escalation of the cost of housing and, and, And that escalation is so steep. And that line that I drew is actually worse in developing 
in cities in developing countries than it is in some of the uh, uh, developed countries. You know, so that line would look like Lagos, you know, Cairo. It's pretty interesting. What we're also seeing in cities around the world beyond unaffordability is very weak tenant protections. Well, there's two things. So because housing is so expensive, you have a lot, the growth of informal settlements across the global south. They're just increasing and increasing. And that is housing precarity. And that is inadequate housing, often without basic services and often at risk of eviction because informal settlements often situate themselves on public lands and uh, governments often seek to evict people living in informal settlements. Why? Because they want to develop that land for investors and for people with more money. Often informal settlements are situated on some of the best lands because people need to live near where they're working, near city amenities, near their own communities. And so they will establish themselves on some of the best lands and governments will evict them. And um, that's obviously uh, a a many-layered problem. Um, But we're also seeing in... um, both developed and developing countries, very weak tenant protections where tenants have no security of tenure. They're not granted, um, let's say, long-term leases or rents can be increased uh, quite dramatically from one year to the next, sometimes even from one month to the next, depending on the legislative regime. And um, weak tenant protections can, of course, lead to evictions and evictions lead to often lead to homelessness. And that's another thing that we're seeing in cities around the world, an an increase in most cities around the world, an increase in the number of people living in homelessness. And if we go, if we just pause for a moment there and think about that. So what we're seeing is increasing wealth in cities that Martin's book is going to um, expose. So we're seeing you know, a lot of a lot more wealth congregating in cities, a lot more wealthy people congregating in cities, and at the same time, increasing homelessness. Now that should make you scratch your head, like what? More wealth, more homelessness? And and then the penny should drop. Perhaps with wealth comes homelessness. With wealth in real estate comes homelessness. And what's so disturbing to me, if we pause and also ask ourselves again, who are cities for? When we're looking at who's being driven out. Once you um, reach a state of homelessness in many cities around the world, what happens next is you start getting pushed out of the city. Now, Martin's book is going to demonstrate that it's not even just those who are homeless, right? It's, it's those who are lower income. You're getting pushed to the suburbs. I'm only talking about a, a sub-subcategory of people who are homeless. Um, but I would obviously, Martin's uh, uh, research is going to be super important for us to document this. So the lower your income is, and certainly people living in homelessness being pushed out of cities. And so, again... Who are cities for? And if you look at the phenomenon of migration, 
and refugees. This is a particularly acute problem for those of you living. It's not a problem. It's how uh, migration and migrants and refugees are dealt with is the problem. But they, at you, those of you situated in Europe will know. Obviously, an influx of migrants and refugees does put pressure on housing systems, but the response has been to drive to 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 provide such scant housing um, services, etc., for those populations, so as to, in fact, make it um, hostile territory for those groups to actually reside in cities, moving them along, moving them along from city to city until until they go where, who knows. Um, I've been asked many times, and I find this, I think it's a good question for us to dwell in. So, well, if they can't afford to live in cities, do they have the right to live in the city? I'm asked this all the time. And I mean, I find it actually a slightly uh, problematic question. I mean, so... How does that work? We create cities that are unaffordable to people and then we suggest that they don't have a right to live there. Uh, obviously problematic. But I will say from a law point of view, from an international human rights law point of view, you will not find in a treaty the right to live in a city. You will see some political declarations, the urban agenda, for example, um, the, uh, the habitat agenda, um, the new urban agenda, excuse me, sorry. Um, you will see references to the right to the city. But in terms of treaties that governments sign and ratify, you will not see a codified right to the city. But what you will see is the right to an adequate standard of living, which includes access to adequate housing. And in fact, the right to housing stands as its own separate right. And so if we all agree and know that the reason there are pressures on cities that so many people who, in quotes, can't afford to live in cities are in cities is because that's where they can have a reasonable expectation of having an adequate standard of living, in other words, through employment, then we know that, yes, there is a kind of right to the city through international human rights law. And and. Importantly, there is a right to adequate housing, uh, and governments have committed to that very clearly. Um, so, you know, what does that look like? What does that actually mean uh, when governments um, when governments commit to the right to housing? And I just want to reiterate that, by in my opinion, by committing to the right to housing, governments can commit at the same time to ensuring that cities are for everyone. And that's what I love about a human rights framework is it addresses inequality and structural inequality, and it addresses structural discrimination. And so if we can get cities and national level governments to embrace the right to housing, they will be embracing the notion that the city is for everyone. So what are the principles? What would be the key principles that governments should ascribe to and how should they do this? So first of all, I would say it's very important for cities 
to, and this is just a really practical thing I want to put out there, but it's, it, it's sometimes nice to know that human rights are not airy-fairy and that they actually have some practical sense, you know, practical um, applicability. And so what I want to say is that cities and national level governments should actually do two things. They should put in legislation that they commit themselves to recognizing housing is a fundamental human right. They don't have to say, and not a commodity. They could just say, you know, the city of so-and-so hereby declares or hereby recognizes that housing is a fundamental human right. A national government could do the same thing. It doesn't have to be in the Constitution. It could just be a piece of legislation. That's super important. And that legislation should then say that it is the responsibility of the government to enact a, a human rights-based housing strategy really a concrete strategy for how the human right to housing is going to roll out that includes measurable goals and timelines, that includes principles of non-discrimination and inclusivity and diversity, that includes an understanding of affordability, and that includes methods to ensure that there is housing that is affordable to households and that affordability not be based on what markets can bear, but rather it be based on what households can afford, you know, what they, what the money households have. A housing strategy would, would, would address issues around security of tenure and weak tenant protections. Um, um, it could also control the big financial actors that have moved in to the housing landscape, and I should have mentioned this earlier, the cause, one of the causes of unaffordability of housing, for those of you who have seen the film Push, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you should, um, because it'll enlighten you and it's entertaining at the same time. Um, but, you know, private equity firms um, have moved into cities around the world and are purchasing uh, residential real estate and uh, forcing um, the price of housing to go up. And so through a, a rights-based housing strategy and through legislation, you could be controlling these financial actors to make sure they don't upset the housing system in such a way as to make cities unaffordable to everyday people. Um, and it's super important as well um, for governments to start recognizing that people tenants, residents of informal settlements have a very, if granted the space and place to contribute to cities and to contribute to what a city could look like, um, they will take it up. I have never been in a city where there, where opportunities were offered for city, for, um, people to engage in city planning, in uh, housing affordability issues, et cetera, where residents said, no, no, not interested. It's the opposite. What you find is when, when people, when tenants, when uh, residents of informal settlements are engaged on issues of their future, of the future of the city, of their lands, they will sit at the table and they will come up with very practical and often very modest ideas for how to make their own lives better and the city better as a result. I'm gonna stop there. 
I think I've given you a lot to think about. I hope I have anyway. Um, and I'm open to questions if that's how, uh, Roberto, you want to proceed. I have uh, uh, my first question, if you allow me. Um, what do you think about the idea of making housing, or at least some public social housing, um, a public infrastructure that has a different way of financing? Have you heard of this? I have. I've, there's actually a fair bit of discussion around this. Um, and I think that makes good sense. And it certainly e seems much easier to access dollars for infrastructure and public infrastructure than it does to access dollars for public housing. The question will always be about management. So let's say you could put housing within a public infrastructure um, umbrella or under that umbrella, like bridges and and um, subway lines and metro and you know the bike lanes and all of this. Let's say housing could be put in that frame. The question would be who would build it, who would manage it, etc. And um, I think we need to disrupt the current thinking around that. Some might say, um, well, only the private sector is capable of building. Uh, and I, I would dispute that. Um, and then some might say, oh, it should just rest with uh, government. My feeling is it's really important for cities uh, and national level governments to increase public assets. So to actually do the purchasing of lands or to retain their own lands, but that it's very important to work with community associations, community housing providers in the development of those lands and those housing projects. This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools, the Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University, Carolina Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez. Music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira. Sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.